Listen closely to the coastal commotion and irritable waterfowl of 1970s Fells Point, the historic waterfront Baltimore neighborhood that served as a literal and figurative loading dock for John Waters' cinematic contraband. Once a bustling shipbuilding port, Fells Point has a complex and often tumultuous legacy, encompassing the horrors of the domestic slave trade, a period of industrial prosperity and subsequent urban decay, outbursts of maritime warfare, a vast array of diverse immigrant populations and artist enclaves, and, as of 2022, a neoliberal rebranding where water taxis deliver well-to-do tourists to boutique seafood dining experiences. One can see how John Waters was inspired by these tangible extremities, which in many ways serve as a salty amuse-bouche of the larger Baltimorean experience. It is a city that revels in the power clash, in the bait and switch, comprised of a citizenship that is accustomed to conflict. How do crustacean monstrosities, Billie Holiday and Frederick Douglass, antiquated censorship boards run by unhinged Catholic grandmothers, segregated amusement parks, and a team of merry pranksters called the Dreamlanders figure into the adult fairy tale of a place called Charm City. Join me as we wade into over five decades of raw sewage to find out. We might make some filthy friends along the way, like director of the cult classic Jawbreaker, Darren Stein. I killed Liz. I killed the Teen Dream. Deal with it. Or performance artist and host of the wildly popular Weirdo Night, Dynasty Handbag. Stick with me, hun, and you'll be a full-blown Baltimorean in no time at all. I'm your regional filth correspondent and devoted trash collector, Kamikaze Jones. And this is pure garbage. An oral examination of John Waters. Presented by Wussy Magazine in collaboration with Out TV and Double Scorpio. Whether screaming, Long live the new flesh in a classic Cronenberg freakout, or perusing your favorite niche porn hub subgenre, Double Scorpio will open you up nice and wide to the endless possibilities of movie magic. Mmm. Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. Pure Garbage, 
episode two. High friends in low places. Baltimore, Maryland, hairdo capital of the world. I would never want to live anywhere but Baltimore. You can look far and wide, but you'll never discover a stranger city with such extreme style. It's as if every eccentric in the South decided to move north, ran out of gas in Baltimore, and decided to stay. No one moves here. When the city thought up slogans to lure tourists, Baltimore is best, Charm City, USA, Everyone laughed, but I couldn't agree more with these sentiments. The Chamber of Commerce should stop trying to hide all the negative aspects of Baltimore and start playing up the seamy side to lure every crackpot in the country to this great city. Baltimoreans, or Baltimoreans as they are sometimes called, shouldn't hang their heads in shame when they hear Baltimore referred to as the armpit of the nation or Bumberg. Be proud! Think of it as Trashtown, USA, the sleaziest city on earth, the hairdo capital of the world. These are some illuminating excerpts from John Waters' 1981 book, Shock Value. And although he maintains residences in New York City, Los Angeles, and a summer rental in Provincetown, Waters has never truly left Baltimore. There's no place like home, one might say even though Waters always identified more with the Wicked Witch of the West in his childhood years than Bland Dorothy. I'm the only child in the audience that always wondered why Dorothy ever wanted to go back to Kansas. Why would she want to go back to Kansas in this dreary black and white farm with an aunt who dressed badly and seemed mean to me when she could live with magic shoes, winged monkeys, and gay lions? I never understood it. For over 20 years, he has collected his fan mail from Atomic Books and opens his home to a select demi-monde for his annual Christmas party, a holiday that he takes very seriously. What are these? Those are your new shoes, Don. Those aren't the right kind. I told you, chop down your black ones. Although raised in Lutherville, a Baltimore suburb, by moderately conservative yet begrudgingly supportive parents, Waters often gravitated to Fell's point when he began to make films fascinated with the oddballs that typically frequented the dive bars on the banks of the Patapsco River. If you're feeling especially nervy, go into the bars. I don't mean the discos, punk rock hangouts, or cocktail lounges. I mean the really scary bars like the Wigwam. Pat Moran called me excitedly one night to tell me, you should have been at the Wigwam last night. I was so terrified that I had a wonderful time. The head barmaid, Miss Charlotte, is at least 48 and has a staggering wardrobe of 1960s mini outfits. You find a style you like and you just stick with it, she says. Miss Charlotte sometimes dances half nude on the bar as freshly released convicts and alcoholic psychopaths cheer her on. They are too drunk to see it, she confided to me, but they sure can smell it. He would eventually meet one of his leading ladies, the inimitable Edith Massey, while she was tending bar at Pete's Hotel. I met Edie when she worked at a bar in Fells Point called Pete's Hotel that was sort of like a wine ale hangout. And a woman friend of mine said to me, you've got to see this woman, and she was right. And I went in, and uh, 
I asked Edith if she wanted to do a, a part in a film, and she said, uh, yeah, she'd love to do it. You know, she, of course, she said, oh, I can't do it, I can't do it. You had to talk her into doing it. But uh, it was in Multiple Maniacs, and she actually played herself as a barmaid in Pete's Bar. When I first came to Fells Point, it was very different than now. It was uh, not what you would say the place to go. Nobody was here. I mean, it was most of the places were closed. They were just neighborhood bars. Uh, the only place where young people went was Pete's Hotel, and that was due to Edith, because uh, it certainly wasn't a lovely place to hang out, but I think drinks were 15 cents or something, which helped. And Edie would slip you a free one every once in a while. Here is an excerpt of Edith reading a poem she wrote about her beloved neighborhood while maintaining her thrift store, Edith's Shopping Bag. This is a little poem I read, wrote about Bell's Point. I hope you all like it. It's a quaint little place where good people meet, where there's a lot of good places to eat and drink, and an art gallery and theaters that are so neat. It's a Greenwich Village where people can meet, never a stranger on the street. It's a Fells Point, you see. So let's all get, to be let's all get together and be merry and have a good time with the people of Fells Point Street by Edith Massey. In a 2004 interview, John Waters' long-term production designer, Vincent Peranio, who worked on every film from Multiple Maniacs up to 2004's A Dirty Shame, said the following about the former Fells Point bakery he transformed into an art commune in 1968. It was two row houses together, and it was 27 rooms for $100 a month. I think my rent was $13 when we were sharing, so it was kind of like a little artist commune that just came in here, and it was mostly, at the time, a Polish community and Greek community. Right down the street was a belly dancing place called the Acropolis. And it was also a period of Fells Point when it was almost a ghost town because houses were being boarded up by the city. People were being moved out. Most people in the city and in suburbia wouldn't even come down here. They thought it was too dangerous. Aside from the historical aspect of Fells Point, the combination of, of uh, groups that are living there together, the vitality of artist groups, of, of uh, various immigrant, uh, recent immigrant populations, first and second generation groups from Eastern Europe, uh, the uh, people who were restoring houses, the industry, the working population, it's an extremely vital area. But enough of this storied waterfront for now. It's time to go back a bit further, back to Lutherville, when John Waters was still a strange and precocious child who insisted his mother take him to inspect automobile wrecks in the scrapyard. The type of child who put on disturbing Punch and Judy puppet shows for neighborhood kids who raced home from the tedium of Catholic school to watch the Buddy Dean show every afternoon, which was eventually canceled over its hesitance to desegregate its programming. He used to play car accident when he was a kid. He would take perfectly good toy cars and ram them against trees and break them. And I remember asking the pediatrician about it, and he said, if he wants to smash up cars, let him. And I had sometimes three and four puppet shows a week. And at the height of my career, maybe I made 25 bucks a show, which was really a lot of money in the mid, you know, in the 50s for a 10-year-old kid. And it was a pretty interesting production to try to put the Tingler on as a puppet show, which he did. Uh, a friend of mine and I had to hide under the benches and grab people's legs at the key time. 
uh, just to add that little extra thrill to people. I would come out from behind the stage, which is a real no-no for puppeteers, because the kids never saw you, and they see this man come out with the dragon puppet and make each one of the kids stick out their hand and I'd bite it for good luck. 90% of the audience, they loved it. The other 10% of the children had nervous breakdowns. I could see the driving, so I would take binoculars and try to go up there at night and look at it. We did not know anything about him watching those movies with binoculars from a hill, but he told us about it when we were coming home in the car on Thanksgiving Day. That was really the first time I'd ever heard of it. I went to the movie all the time. Bonnie, Mary Vivian Pierce and I took speed all the time and went to see three and four movies a day. That was our idea of a great day. Mary Vivian Pierce was the earliest childhood friend to participate in Waters films. In between pegging school teachers with snowballs and making strangers at restaurants profoundly uncomfortable with their lewd dancing, they used stolen film to produce Waters' first underground effort, Hag in a Black Leather Jacket. Not long after, Waters met Harris Glenn Milstead, yet to become divine. Through Glenn came the worldly high school dropout David Lockery and recent divorcee Pat Moran, who became Waters' long-term casting director. The fact that Pat and Glenn had been the prime suspects in a murder investigation only strengthened their appeal. Through Pat came Malcolm Soule, an early Waters leading lady who featured prominently as a naughty nun in Roman Candles, a deranged governess in Eat Your Makeup, and the wicked witch in the unfinished Dorothy the Kansas City Pothead. Rumor has it that she once fucked Jack Kerouac in the buffalo pits of the Baltimore City Zoo. Malcolm's bold aesthetic and zero fucks given attitude made every public appearance a confrontational act before her untimely death at age 27. Malcolm Soul was my first star. I mean, she was the most influential woman on me. She was sort of the kiki of Baltimore. She was in Roman Candles and Eat Your Makeup, of my two movies that are certainly not shown today. She was the star of them. Um, even Divine was in awe of Malcolm Soul. She died when she was about 27 of old age. And she was a great, great influence on all our lives when we were young. Um, she was a great lady and one of the most eccentric people I've ever met to this day. A beatnik princess. Around this time, Waters and the Dreamlanders were regularly taking LSD, often at elaborate illegal parties that Divine would orchestrate using rented banquet halls, lavish gowns, huge bouquets stolen from cemeteries, and hired servants. Divine had no means and no intentions of paying the bill for these grand soirees, but continued to throw them nonetheless, and eventually had to go into hiding to dodge numerous debt collectors. John Waters met Mink Stoll, a Baltimore native, on an acid-fueled hitchhiking trip to Provincetown. Although drugs were a prominent fixture in the Dreamlanders' universe during this era, Waters maintained a constant air of professionalism when shooting a film, and many sources corroborate that all the partying was done after production had wrapped. John Waters' first feature-length film, Mondo Trasho, was made on a budget of $2,000 with money borrowed from Waters' father. John came to me once and said, Dad, could you lend me some money? And I said, probably not. What for? And he said, that, well, to make a movie. And I said, how much? And he gave me a terrible high figure at that time. 
And I said, no way. And he said, you're spending that to send my siblings to college. Uh, I'm not going to college. You're going to save that money. Why not let me have it to invest in a movie? He's a pretty good salesman, and he got the money. During the filming of Mondo Trasho, a stunt involving actor Mark Isherwood streaking at John Hopkins University caused the entire cast and crew to be arrested for conspiracy to commit indecent exposure. It proved difficult to make a getaway in the red 59 Cadillac Eldorado convertible that was rented for the movie. Only Isherwood was detained on the scene, but the majority of the other players were apprehended the next day. Mink Stoll was arrested in her bathtub and got a healthy amount of press coverage by commenting that there was more exposure in the arrest than in the incident. Ever the showman, Waters leaned into the spectacle, and the media frenzy surrounding the trial guaranteed a sellout premiere of Mondo Trasho. By healing her through grace, and, and that I will truly be able to believe to be divine. Oh God, oh Mary, oh Holy Trinity, oh God, oh Mary, oh Holy Trinity. Oh, God! Oh, God! Oh, God! God! Oh, God! Oh, God! Oh, God! Oh, God! Oh, God! As if things couldn't get any more zany, the judge presiding over the case read a particularly flamboyant poem to commemorate the dropping of the charges. Old Baltimore is in a spin because of Isherwood's display of skin. He cannot bear the shame and cracks brought on by showing the bare facts. And so go then and sin no more, disrobe if need be, but behind the door. And if again you heed the call to art, rest assured the judge will do his part. Mondo Trasho, like previous John Waters films, premiered at the Emmanuel Church. Unlike previous Waters films, there were nine sold-out shows. Waters would soon provoke the wrath of Mary Avera, a no-nonsense eccentric Catholic grandmother who served as the governor-appointed head of the Maryland State Board of Censors for 21 years. Avera and Waters would clash many times throughout his career, until the censorship board, one of the only remaining in the country, was dissolved in 1981. Let's see what Mary has to say about dirty movies. Sickening, sicky. They're sickies making films. As far as we're concerned, we're turning the picture down. But regardless if anybody says my constitutional rights, big deal, constitutional right. When that was written, how many were people were in existence? Did they have this type of, these type of films that were being shown? The propriety of a censorship board disturbed some state legislators, but not the board itself, which rejected more than 50 movies last year out of 700. Producers can appeal in court, but most don't. The courts have tended to back Mary and the board. I only I loved whipped cream on strawberries. I don't even buy whipped cream no more. I don't know if you're married, but uh, you, you take your wife out and you you strip nude to a party and they pour whipped cream all over you and you start licking it off. Is this what is this entertainment? Is this what should be shown on the screen? The next day, Mary was back at it, looking at a Jacqueline Bissett movie rated R. Mary finds the ratings far too lenient. 
and uses her own. Well, I rate them GP, garbage production. R is for rotten. BR, beyond repairs. If it's real bad, it's four R's. Rotten, rotten, and rotten, and rotten. Now it's time to introduce a special pure garbage segment called Cookie's Corner, in which the poet Kay Gabriel invokes the renegade spirit of writer, actress, and dreamlander Cookie Mueller by reading from her recently reissued collection, Walking Through Clear Water in a Pool Painted Black. It's Cookie's Corner. Here, in Cookie's own words, is her first encounter with John Waters. At the time in Baltimore, there'd been word of a hometown filmmaker named John Waters, who was showing his low-budget films in churches and bingo halls all over the city. One night, Babette Nash and I went to one of his screenings of Mondo Trasho at a church bingo hall, right around the corner from Lovegrove Alley. A door prize was offered, and after the screening, there was a random drawing of ticket stubs I won. The prize was twofold, dinner at a White Tower hamburger joint, and a screen test. Over dinner, I discovered John Waters, and he discovered me. We got along. John was as thin as a string bean with shoulder-length brown hair and a pencil-thin mustache. He wore thrift store shirts, drank Coca-Cola, and smoked cool midgets nonstop. He made me laugh. He seemed driven, so driven in fact, that when he told me that he was premature and only weighed a pound at birth, I envisioned him as an infant, compact like a pound cake, lying in a clear plastic preemie life support box while nurses' aides were off loafing, already Rococo, and bursting his bunting wrapper with his dreams and plans of film scenarios. I'm sure he was entertaining the other babies, making them laugh with the inept hospital staff, their moms and dads, and the oddness of being born. He's one of those kinds of people that you imagine was already an adult while still a baby. The same, just smaller. When later I did the screen test and met his constant companions, Divine, Mink Stoll, David Lockery, Bonnie Pierce, Pat Moran, Susan Lowe, Marina Mellon, I felt like I was meeting my new family. I got a part in his next film, Multiple Maniacs. We were starting to shoot in a couple of weeks. All aboard the Degenerate Express. It's time for this week's special guest. Here at Pure Garbage, we hope to cultivate a network of community and care by harnessing the radical queer power of the putrid. We are thrilled to engage with artists, performers, writers, and historians who are directly involved or have directly inherited John Waters' legacy of filth. I'm thrilled to welcome my first guest this week, director, producer, and screenwriter Darren Stein. Darren Stein is the director of the 1999 cult classic Jawbreaker, starring Rose McGowan as the fashionably sociopathic Courtney Shane, who transforms the pasty wallflower Fern, played by Judy Greer, into the high school it girl Violet to buy her silence after a birthday prank goes murderously awry. He is also the producer of All About Evil, the meta-slasher directed by last week's guest, Peaches Christ. Please give a warm and filthy welcome to Darren Stein. When did you first come across John Waters and like what kind of moment was that for you? 
Um, I think I was going to a video store, you know, this is back in the days of video when you had to rent videos. I think usually I, I was really more into the horror section because of those, those titles, those covers were so bloody and graphic and exciting. And I think I discovered one of the very first John Waters films must have been, I think it was Multiple Maniacs, the one where Divine gets raped by the lobster. And I think it might've been in the horror section perhaps, or it was in the cult section, which was near the horror. But the cover, the cover I think had her being raped by, by a lobster. And I just immediately was, it was about Divine. It was about the beauty and the grotesque. Uh, it was naughty. It was something that I knew I shouldn't be looking at, you know, so um, it was exciting. And, and, and I would not just watch it myself. I would like make all the neighborhood kids then watch it. Like it wasn't enough for me to experience it. I had to jet, I had to then sort of spread the filth around the cul-de-sac, you know? I was always into just anything punk or transgressive. Like I was drawn to it. it was like, I was like hardwired for it. Otherness of being queer as a kid, you feel the othering of yourself. You, you look for, I think you look for material that feels similarly, uh, I don't know, alien, transgressive, anything that's sort of like outside the realm. Cause when you're queer, you don't, you don't, you don't have billboards, you don't have TV shows. I mean, I'm 50. So this is, I'm talking about like the late seventies, early eighties. We didn't have anything, you know, drag related or gay related, you know, in, in media. So you had to sort of find the clues and, you know, it was people like John Waters, horror as a genre. Rocky Horror Picture Show was a very early, you know, Frankenfurter. I was a member of the Tim Curry fan club. And to this day, I'm still obsessed with Tim Curry, like obsessed. Divine and Frankenfurter are similarly um, amoral, glamorous, um, larger than life, you know, um, dangerous. And to push and promote their radical ideologies and the homosexual agenda. Yeah, which, which I was then doing on my cul-de-sac, you know, with, with, with all the straight kids in the neighborhood um, through the movies I made that were inspired by, you know, John Waters or Rocky or, you know, anything I was, I was taking in as a kid. One film in particular was called Gay as a Whistle, and it was about a magic coin that would turn the straight kids gay just by looking at it. And it was called Gay as a Whistle because I guess I thought a whistle was somehow gay because it was so high-pitched. So it's a, it was just a crazy film about me processing my sexuality that I made when I was like, I don't know, 13 or 14 years old. It's funny because I, it had been a while since I'd watched Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble. And I think I, I had watched them a few years ago and I was like, oh my God, there's so much influence of John Waters in Jawbreaker. It's crazy. So I think that the, D, the John Waters DNA, just you, the soil of young gay just literally drinks it up. And you don't need to revisit those films because guess what, it is in you. It is like your first you know, piece of chocolate, your first blowjob. You know, the, the, that dialogue, that sensibility, those imager, that imagery informs everything. It, it, is, it sort of becomes molecular or cellular. You know, it's like a Cronenberg movie, that the, the way that John Waters, it's like his, the influence of, of him is it's so intrinsic. It's like, it's as basic as something like The Brady Bunch or like a Disney movie for a normal kid would be. Um, yeah, and I, getting back to Jawbreaker, I mean, I think there's obviously like something about like respectability politics and like this trope of American morality that's very much instantaneously subverted in that film. And that feels like carrying the torch of this legacy that is like, you know, John Waters and his ethos. Yeah, Courtney Shane in Jawbreaker, you never know why she's bad. Like, you don't, she, she, you don't meet her parents, you don't hear about any trauma in her past. 
there's no damage, there's no reason, rhyme or reason, she's just evil. And that is what it is. And it, it, it tracks for any, you know, so, so many of the characters in the John Waters movies. Um, whereas in a normalized world, you'd want to know why and fix that and have her see the error of her ways by the end. Also, I went to an all boys school, you know, from seventh grade to 12th grade. So I didn't get to have my high school movie upbringing that I wanted to, you know, from the films I had grown up with, like Grease, Carrie, Rock and Roll High School, Heathers. So Jawbreaker for me was a way to sort of write my fantasy high school, which was like beyond the valley of it all, you know, which is faster pussycat kill kill, you know, it was like glam glamazons roaming the halls, right? Yeah, and I think all the characters are kind of amoral, uh, pretty overtly. And that reminds me of John Waters' preoccupations with Pesolini or like Jean Genet or anything like that, like this transvaluation that's happening. And I think that's a very rich legacy and tradition in like queer transgressive art. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like amorality is such a delicious thing to be able to claim when you can't, when, when, you're, when you're struggling to exist in a world that wasn't made with you in mind. You know, I mean, it's, a, it's really a survival mechanism. Amorality is a queer survival mechanism, or in other words, be gay, do crime. Thank you for that sentiment, Darren. That brings me to our next distinguished guest, another kooky Californian who is no stranger to forbidden pleasures. Pure Garbage welcomes award-winning performance and video artist Jibs Cameron, aka Dynasty Handbag. Dynasty Handbag is a recipient of the 2022 Guggenheim Fellowship in Drama and Performance Art. She is the host and producer of Weirdo Night, a monthly variety show showcasing misfit talent for freaks and their allies. She is known for her fervent interest in the many methods of cooking an egg. Pure Garbage is shocked and appalled to welcome Dynasty handbag. I think that I read an interview of yours where you said that a lot of your performance work is um, this concept of like failing to perform like traditional femininity. And I see a lot of parallels uh, between your work and, you know, the work of Divine and the work of John in like, you know, these send-ups or like these deconstructions of like what is traditionally feminine. Um, and I was wondering if you'd care to talk about that. Oh my God, no, I don't want to talk <laughs> about the femininity or traditional forms of, or the structural higher, I'm done. Um, yeah, all I want to talk about is like, you know, what are we having for lunch, cheese and pickle sandwich? Anyway, no, yes, yeah, Cheryl, I can talk about that. I feel like I didn't a little bit the same kind of thing. Like I didn't really know what I was doing for a long time with my performance work. Like I didn't have dialogue around it until people started writing about me <laughs> and then like telling me what I was doing. So I can't like attribute all of these, um, you know, like smarty pants thoughts to my, you know, to myself. Like I wasn't like, I'm going to deconstruct femininity and practice queer failure. And like, that was definitely something that was reflected to me. But then the more I, I thought about it, once that was part of my, um, the dialogue around my work, you know, I thought about, well, how did I, you know, what is this? Where did I learn what femininity was? And, and why is it such a joke to me? 
then I started putting the pieces together a little bit, like historically, like my own mom and with my own gender stuff and just kind of knowing it was really like a farce. I don't know how I knew that. I just, did, I just didn't ever take it seriously. And I was not, luckily, I mean, my, my mom was not, she did a lot of other damage, but I'm really grateful that she didn't do any of the body shaming damage or the here's how you look presentable damage or, you know, I mean, there's a little bit of that with my dad, but it, it wasn't, that stuff wasn't really forward. What, you know, she was like a fucking mess, like of, you know, real failure of trying to, you know, be, I mean, not, not that Dynasty Handbag comes all from my mother, although, you know, if it's not one thing, it's your mother. And with John Waters' work, it's like, he doesn't really even have to say anything new. It's just the way that he presents it all is just so fucking hilarious and brilliant. And the dialogue that's going on now and all the words we have that are like, you know, more highfalutin or whatever you want to call it. I mean, he was talking about fat shaming, slut shaming, you know, like hairspray's whole like take on race. I mean, he's white. So it's like, it's an amazing perspective from a white person, like very radical in many ways, in my opinion. There's a lot of stems that can come from what you just said. <laughs> and I just, yeah. last night I just read, um, I'm in the middle of reading Role Models by John Waters. Um, and I just read the chapter. That's one of my favorite books. I think it's my favorite too. It's just really, it has this like, it's like tender in a way that I think a lot of the other writing isn't. And like, I'm not a tender queer, but I am, this is resonating with me in a way. Girl, you're wearing a tie dye and you have like a little, uh, okay. <laughs> it says Paradise Top Company apparel, so. <laughs> okay, so you're snarky, got it. <laughs> I'm a snarky girl. Uh, I wouldn't call myself a tender queer either, but um, I do have some foot problems today, which, you know, and some digestive issues, which definitely puts me into a lesbian category that sensitive. Anyway, um, you were saying? That might be a good segue to talk about like this idea of the endurance of like, you know, queer resilience or like queer community and like how the Dreamlanders and John Waters and like his relationship with Cookie and all the people that he used was, there was like a depth of care there that I think was not present from like perhaps other queer performance collectives at the time. And I think nurturing this DIY ethos has become like a template for a lot of us and like thinking about like Weirdo Night and like, you know, curatorial work and like, you know, like doing stuff for queer community. Well, that's really nice to hear like my work associated in that way. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it in, in relationship to, I think maybe when I started learning about, you know, just seeing that like, oh, Minkstool, divide, like they're in everything and then learning about Van, you know, like just learning that it's the same people and then, oh, it, they're all friends. Oh, and they were friends when they were kids. Oh, and they made you know, eat your makeup on the seat, on the roof. And like, just like, right, of course, this is all people that he trusts and thinks are hilarious and brilliant and wants to get behind the camera to like, show the world these incredible, that's how I feel about my friends and the people that I want on my show and really trying to keep it away from any kind of like, who's gonna, who's gonna make me money. You're facilitating this like warm and loving community, but you're also taking the piss out of it as a host, which is exciting, which is very much what I think he does. 
And I think this destabilization of like high and low culture, you can see kind of like, I mean, just for example, thinking of like Sarah Squirm's work and now being on SNL is like a really interesting kind of like trajectory. I'm like, dude, what? <laughs> but then also like, of course, you know, like she's quite ahead of her time as well. And in, in, in some ways, because she's like talking about bo body horror stuff a lot, Sarah, Sarah's take is very very like radical in this way of like being repulsed by her own body in a way that's like beyond gender in some ways so Sarah I mean it was really funny she was on the she was on she's been on my show a couple of times and then since she's been on SNL she was on the show in um, New York and I think she's so funny that I forget how disgusting she is and a lot of the there were people who were like that was so fucking gross like who is that weird ass gross ass person and I'm like does doesn't humor trump all like other commentary on anything but yeah I try to keep it I don't know definitely try to keep it queer I've got I mean there's been people who are not queer on my show before never goes as well but but you know sometimes I get people who are like straight apologists and that does not go well like they use their um, their slot to be a straight apologist a little bit like a little commentary like well I'm 51 I had one person who was like kind of a celebrity on it and was like not I'm 51% straight I was like oh god and also I think there's a lot of stuff going on where you know people will try to like co-opt certain like radical ideologies and like John has such an interesting trajectory because he's managed to I don't think I mean there's people who would say that like the later films are like sellout films of John Waters and I profoundly disagree I feel like he's managed to like you know something he would say about his own work is like smuggle radical ideologies into the Midwest. John Waters, I think said himself, like he wanted to do something that would like scandalize people. And like, that was like his primary objective early in his work and like that. And he had like a lot of faith in manifesting that. Um, and I know he was like no nonsense on set. Like everyone I've talked to is like, there was no improv. Like he ran a tight ship. He was just like, you know, a mover and a shaker and a world builder. Um, so. Yeah, world builder for sure. You know, he was like the glue of the, the system and he had like a more or less stable home life more so than like some, a lot of the folks that were, I mean, definitely than with like, divine and he's always talked about how his parents like pretty much supported him or were like you're a freak but whatever like you know he was able to create that world from a place of like stability like he didn't have all these like fucked up ego things happening to him when he was a young person where he didn't have like I definitely did not have any kind of confidence that I could I'm like I want to do this thing and I'm going to do it you know it was just like everything to me felt like an accident if anything you know or I would just like kind of get carried along and if I you know made something in the meantime that was great or like everybody was making stuff so I just made stuff and never had any vision never had any goals you know maybe there was some vague stuff but it was definitely like 
a voice that was very much like not for you though. He wasn't plagued with self-doubt in my, in what I have understand about him. I mean, I, I don't know him personally, so, but it seems that that is like a really special thing that he was the person in the group who was kind of like, I see you all like I, this is the care part, right? Like I see you, you're all special. You're all freaky, you know, unicorns or whatever to use a gross term. Um, and I'm going to like hold this together and like, we're going to do this thing together. And I mean, they were all like young and partying and on drugs and stuff too, but it definitely seemed like he was so self-actualized like as a teen, which like, I don't think I, I still wouldn't consider myself a, a self-actualized person with like a definitive goal. But yeah, it, it's, it's incredible to think of someone having such an uncompromising vision at that age. And like you said, being a glue to tie a community together. And I think a lot of what's exciting for me and like why it's been such a thrill to talk to you is like seeing these paradigms of care in queer community. We have to keep remembering that like, people would try to continue to take everything, you know, like to just take it all, just to commodify everything and take it all. I, I was just in, in Austria and I met this, I was with my partner and her, anyway, I learned something in Austria, which was that there's a terminology now called flinta, which is feminist, lesbian, intersex, non-binary, trans, a gender. So if you want to say your space is like, like a BIPOC space or queer, you know, you say it's a flinta space, a flinta space. And then I heard that they don't use the L anymore because they took the lesbian out of it because lesbians, you know, I mean, technically it's like, because it just shouldn't care. It shouldn't be a, a, a point of like who you have sex with, fine, whatever. But it's just so funny that like, you know, that that whole thing of like the lesbians being erased forever. The lesbian was never like on the, on the piece of paper. Like the lesbians always been in pencil. Nobody's ever cared about that word. It's a bad, it's a dirty, dumb word. No one likes it. I identify as lesbian, but I'm now like doing all these, asking everybody like, what is, you know, what is a lesbian? You know, it's not just, you can't like, everything's been co-opted. So you can't, it's not, it's not who you have sex with, obviously. And, but it's also like, it's not cast iron. Everyone does that. It's not flannel. That's long gone. It's not drinking things out of jars. Everybody, you know, that's been come off. <laughs> like, is there anything that makes someone a lesbian? And it was like the other day, someone was like, maybe this is what makes me a lesbian. And it was like this very intense gorp that had all these weird, like new kinds of seeds and nuts in it. And I was like, I don't know. Cause this could be you know, I, I, yeah. I think living, living with your exes for six months is still quintessentially lesbian in my humble opinion, but that's the only thing that pops out for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, getting your like partner's brother's like sperm to have a baby with that you pay like $140,000 to have injected in you. It's pretty fucking dikey to me. Have you ever met John? Have you ever had like a, a run-in? Or... Oh, this is a good story. I had a really nice run-in with him, which was when I was about 20 or something, I was living in Brooklyn and I went to go see him talk at the Museum of the Moving Image. He had, a, he had done that, that show where he 
took pictures of the back of people's heads. And then also there was him posing in the same way of pictures with Don Knotts. So there was like oh, pictures of Don Knotts and then a picture of him and he like restaged it and then did them side by side. So I thought it would be really clever if I went and got a photograph of Don Knotts for him to sign. So I brought it and my movie that I had made in college that was like a musical spoof on art school. And I was like, I'm going to give it to him. He's going to put me in his movies. Like he didn't, I don't think he really even noticed my joke. It was like very overwhelming. There was like a million people there to see him. And then I talked about this in art form like a few years ago. And he wrote me a note and because I was performing at the, at the new museum, he wrote me a note and sent it to the new museum saying like, I would love to come to your show. I can't thank you for the write-up or thank you for the mention in art form. Cause it was one of those, like, what, who are your biggest influences? Um, he was number two and, and then sent me this photograph of this guy that looks like me. And it was like a, it was just like this thing where I was like, I felt so seen by John. Who was the guy? Just, it was like this hot m- m- picture from a some model guy from like the 60s smoking a cigarette, but he looked like me. And my friend pointed it out and was like, it looks like that he's talking about what happened with the photograph. Anyway, it was really cool. And I have it on my bulletin board in my studio my friend Seth, you know Seth Bogart he like um he's tight with him and they do like shows together and stuff and I'm always like oh I'm just wondering if you're ever gonna but you know it's fine like maybe it's just you always have to trust that like you know whatever relationship you have with the person who's like your idol is you don't need to push it Next time on Pure Garbage, we will plunge into the festering depths of the trilogy of filth. The guerrilla marketing campaigns of pink flamingos. Why isn't the egg man here? I'm starving to death for some eggs. The true crime inspirations of female trouble. I blow Richard's back. And the innovative production design of desperate living. What's the matter with the courts? Do they allow this lawlessness and malicious destruction of property to run rampant? I hate the Supreme Court! I'll be joined by multiple maniacs, such as Canadian porn-adjacent provocateur Bruce LaBruce, director of Hustler White, The Raspberry Reich, and Saint Narcisse, and performance artist Paul Swallow, otherwise known as the feral gutter snipe and confrontational swamp creature Christine. I'm your regional filth correspondent and devoted trash collector Kamikaze Jones. And this has been Pure Garbage, an oral examination of John Waters. Oh
Garbage is hosted by Kamikaze Jones, produced by John Dean and Kamikaze Jones, with original music by, you guessed it, Kamikaze Jones and Christian Ruggiero. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, Out TV and Double Scorpio. For a wholesome cinematic experience, choose Double Scorpio. Subscribe, rate, and review our garbage on wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Pure Garbage Pod. He's pure garbage.